You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Senior U.S. officials say the June 20th attacks on Iranian networks helped stop Tehran's attacks on tankers in the Arabian Gulf. TrickBot seems to be going after mobile users' pins. Fancy Bear has taken note of machine learning and modified her behavior accordingly. Facebook revises its rules to achieve greater transparency in political and issue advertising. And a multinational takedown cleans up the Redadup worm infestation. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, August 29, 2019. Senior American officials have described the June 20th U.S. cyber attack against Iranian targets. The New York Times says the officials see the operation as a success. In addition to taking down military networks, the cyber attack wiped out a database essential to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps' operations against tankers in the Arabian Gulf. The Times report says that Iranian military and paramilitary authorities are still trying to recover their systems. The June 20th attack was chosen as non-lethal and, indeed, non-kinetic retaliation for Iran's shootdown of a global Hawk drone operating in what the U.S. and the rest of the civilized world considered international airspace. Iran disagrees, claiming that the drone was flying in Iranian airspace. The cyber attack was authorized after U.S. President Trump rejected proposals for retaliatory airstrikes. The operation against the Revolutionary Guard is seen as an instance of the more assertive U.S. military posture in cyberspace, what Director NSA and Commander U.S. Cyber Command Paul Nakasone calls persistent engagement. There's some discussion of whether the cyber attack was worth it, and in that respect it's worth considering what people take to be the inevitable downsides of this sort of operation. First, there are concerns that attack code might be re-engineered and repurposed by the target. This concern hasn't been raised much in the context of the June 20th strikes. Second comes the downside that's attracted more attention, including, according to reports, attention within the U.S. government. Using a capability of this kind alerts the target to one's presence in its networks, and so the U.S. might have exposed and lost the access it evidently had to Iranian systems. This would be an instance of the familiar complaint about cyber attack tools. They're generally held to be not so much use-it-or-lose-it capabilities as they are thought to be single-shot weapons that, once employed, can't reliably be used again. There's something to these considerations, to be sure, but any military attack decision is, or at least ought to be, the conclusion of a cost-benefit calculation, and in this case the benefits were held to outweigh the costs. That at least is the view of the officials who talked on background to the Times. It's probably also the view of tanker operators in the Gulf. 
Consider a familiar problem from the older discipline of electronic warfare. You found an enemy radio network. Do you jam it? Do you destroy the emitters themselves with artillery or airstrikes? Maybe. Those would certainly deny the enemy the use of that network. On the other hand, if the enemy network is transmitting a lot of ill-conceived orders that are misdirecting the enemy forces, why not let it continue to operate? Or, to take a case closer to the one believed to exist in the Gulf, if you're reading all the enemy traffic, and if the stations on that network are well-informed, chatty, and poorly secured, then it might well be worth letting them keep talking. In this case, the decision seems to have been that the benefits of attack outweighed the costs an attack might exact in terms of access. We'll leave it at that, and just add, good hunting, Cyber Command. Researchers at SecureWorks report that TrickBot is exhibiting new functionality that poses a particular threat to mobile users. The malware now seeks pins that could be used to give Gold Blackburn, the threat group behind TrickBot, the ability to access voice and text communications. Code injected through user interaction with a bogus sign-in page initiates TrickBot's record function. It's easy to grow accustomed to the convenience of biometric security features on our mobile devices. I know I have. But some suggest it's important we not allow ourselves a false sense of security. Martin Zizi is founder and CEO of biometric security company Arendir Mobile. If you have a biometric database, you know uh, databases are essentially <laughs> breachable, hackable if they are of interest. So. Uh, UI can survive the loss of a credit card, the loss of a social security a number. We lost a few, but in the end, we're bitching about getting our, our credential back on ship and we move on. If you lose your biometry now and in the future of the IoT, your loss is perpetual because if you lose your face or your finger imprint, there is no way this side of the galaxy that you can get a new face or new fingers. So databases are no go, for example. Another is that some of the technology are perfectly fine to unlock a phone or to make a, a, a small buy on Amazon or wherever, you know, uh, transfer money uh, from phone to phone. But they don't meet the stringency criteria of unhackability, unspoofability, and even reliability that are needed. Because let's say if a biometry works at 95%, it's fantastic as a product, and I use them. But 95%, if I do bank transfer, is not okay. I need 99.5 at least. And even there, I need probably to have two factors to be ensuring that you don't get access to my money and I don't access to yours. So is this a matter of using a combination of things to increase the reliability and security? It might, but it again gives a false sense of confidence. If you use signals or information that are non-related, it's a plus. But uh, look at the pseudo solution. I could say the way you walk, your gait, the way you hold your phone, your hands, where you live, you have one girlfriend, two girlfriends, one wife, do you go uh, do, doing ice uh, skating on Saturday? You aggregate data and then you build profile. And these profiles that are essentially multi-factor can maybe get at your identity. But there are two problems with that. First, it's a statistical analysis, and it takes weeks to reach 80-85% of accuracy. And imagine how much more time you need to reach higher level of safety. And second, it's darn incompatible with democracy. You understand? Uh, we're not cattle. 
to be tagged from, from cradle to tomb. It raises a new question. In which society do you want to live? Do we want to be uh, at the gate of the airport banned because we have a moving violation? You understand? So mm. I think I'm not advocating for a solution versus the other. I think it's about time that the consumer, that the, 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 the people and everyone involved, because it concerns us all, start to understand and make the informed choice. Because it's all about choice and it's all about giving to uh, to people the access to the right information so that they can choose, oh, I'm fine with uh, face recognition, for example. Uh, beside the fact that it's funny to open my phone with it, I'm fine with it because I see no problem with that. But then I've been at least told the problem. That's Martin Zizi from Erendir Mobile. BlackBerry Silence's Threat Vector Threat Research Team has released new research into a malware sample used by APT28, that is Fancy Bear, Russia's GRU. Threat Vector's new research details analysis of samples U.S. Cyber Command uploaded to VirusTotal. They found that the malware is, quote, a multi-threaded DLL backdoor that gives the threat actor full access to and control of the target host, end quote. Fancy Bear's stripped-down malware is surrounded by a great deal of benign code, and Threat Vector thinks the new approach represents a response to widespread defensive use of machine learning. Facebook has announced a revision to its rules concerning political advertising. The rules will govern both campaign ads and advocacy ads concerning social and political issues. They aim at producing disclosures that would achieve greater transparency with respect to who's sponsoring and paying for the advertising. Finally, Avast has helped the French Gendarmerie take down the Redadoop Worms command and control infrastructure. Redadoop has been active over the past two years, but the coordinated action took over the controlling gang's servers and had them send uninstall commands to approximately 850,000 infected Windows machines. A design flaw in Redadoop's code enabled the deletion, as Avast engineers discovered. Redadoop has been a particular nuisance in Latin America, with Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, Mexico, Colombia, Argentina, and Cuba combining for 85% of the botnet. It's been used for a variety of purposes, but over the past year, Redadoop has been mostly employed in cryptojacking. So bravo Avast, and all credit to the Gendarmes Cybersecurity Bureau. A side note on attribution, the skid who claimed responsibility for Redadoop has been boasting in social media under the name Black Joker. It appears that his identity may now be known. Security researchers at Under the Breach tracked the gentleman's spore through social media and were able to find him using domain registration data. Under the Breach told ZDNet that the fellow appears to be a 26-year-old Palestinian. His name is being quite properly withheld by the media for now, but we imagine that his contact information has been provided to the French authorities, the FBI, and various other interested parties. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. 
You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's always great to have you back. Um, We had a story come by from Slate. This was written by Josh Kaplan, and the title was License Plate Readers Are Creeping Into Neighborhoods Across the Country. What's going on here? So a startup company that specializes in uh, automatic license plate reading has been selling their services to security companies that manage uh, large apartment buildings. This article uh, takes place in New York City, where most of the large apartment buildings in the country can be found. Hmm. Uh, And one thing that's very interesting about this is, while law enforcement has obviously used automatic license plate reading to help solve usually serious crimes... This private security company, in conjunction with the managers of these large apartment buildings, are actually using the license plate reading technology for more mundane tasks, like figuring out whether uh, somebody uh, lied about getting hit by a car in a parking lot, uh, which would have uh, relieved them of their rent payments for one month. Hmm. Uh, And I think the, the upshot of the story is that because the use of this technology has become ubiquitous and also very cheap... It's becoming far more prevalent, and it's not just a high-tech law enforcement tool. It's also uh, becoming something that private organizations can use to monitor their users. Hmm. Now, I I can see an apartment complex making a case for registering my car to make sure that I live there, if I, I, I am entitled to a parking place, that sort of thing. Uh, I don't know how I feel about them tracking my comings and goings. You know, you don't really have any legal leg to stand on here uh, based on current Supreme Court precedent. Uh, we have a very unsettled view of the legality of automatic license plate uh, readers. There's been some conflicting case law on it. Hmm. Basically, uh, because of what's called the public view doctrine, 
law enforcement and private companies as well have the right to uh, surveil you when you make yourself available in public. And so it's not like they're going into your private garage and collecting your uh, and, and reading your license plate there. Uh, they're doing it on public avenues. Of course, in the past, even when license plate reading technology became more prevalent, it was still expensive and it still required some level of, of uh, police work to set it up and to do the tracking. Now, because it's so cheap and so readily available uh, and the technology is much better, you can conduct this sort of routine mass surveillance to figure out whether you know someone's been crashing on on a couch in an apartment building uh, because their car's been in the parking lot uh, and they don't have a a resident sticker in their car, you know, for a period of five to seven days. So, yeah, I mean, I think most people might expect that their license plate could be read for serious law enforcement matters, but not for mundane property management business that uh, people probably think is, is... beneath the importance level for such a technology. The public view doctrine was developed at a time when we were anticipating and thinking of police spotting somebody darting down the street running or, uh, you know, some human intelligence source saw a criminal suspect in a store at a time that a robbery took place. Mm. It's different when we're talking about the routine collection of a significant amount of data, and it also requires very little... Um, human capital. So I think what I'm trying to say there is that there's nobody uh, sitting in the apartment building, you know, firing up their camera and taking pictures of license plates every three seconds. Uh, it's it's all automated. So it's conducted on a mass scale. Uh, there really isn't an opt-out for users. And my guess is that most people who live in these uh, apartment buildings where uh, security companies are using this technology are probably completely unaware that it's being used. I suppose, though, I mean, it's fair to say there there's upsides to this. If if I'm a an apartment complex and someone is coming and you know, dumping trash uh, on my property or something like that, this could make it easier to track someone like that down. Absolutely. I mean, it's a great tool for law enforcement. Uh, there's, it's actually, I mean, studies have shown that it has been an effective tool at solving both serious and and petty crimes because you can pinpoint somebody's location based on where their vehicle was at a given time. So there are absolutely benefits from a law enforcement perspective and from a private security perspective. Uh, they absolutely have an interest in seeing which cars are, are coming in and out of their property and when they're coming in and out and the duration of time that that car is spent in that parking lot. So there are all sorts of routine reasons, many of which are mentioned in this article, why a security company would be interested in that information. But once again, you know, are those benefits to uh, these private security organizations and to these property managers sufficient to justify the bulk collection of tenants' real-time whereabouts? Um, and I, I think that's kind of an, an unanswerable question. Yes, it, it does add a level of convenience for property managers and for law enforcement, but I think that also comes at a, uh, an expense to personal privacy. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. 
It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.